Hello, and welcome to the Hearn Him Podcast. I'm Dale. And I am Tamara. And when two theologians get married, what you get is a podcast. Well, before we dive into today's content, we want to remind everybody, if you weren't planning on doing this already, to stick around to the end of the episode because we have a very special announcement to share with you about something that we've been working on this year, and we are excited about it, but we're going to wait till the end to tell you about it. But today is the Hearn Him Podcast Fashion Edition because we are going to talk fashion today. Fashion. I'm a pretty fashionable guy. Wouldn't You're you say? so fashionable. Would you say that I am as fashionable as, say, I don't know, Harry Styles? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you want to wear a dress? Uh, I mean, not necessarily. Maybe a kilt. A kilt is really just a dress by another name, isn't it? Maybe a tunic. A tunic. Okay. Okay. You're welcome. Well, the reason we're talking fashion is because Harry Styles was on the cover of Vogue magazine. And ordinarily, I would have no idea who on God's green earth was on the cover of Vogue magazine. Yeah, it's not a magazine subscription we own. Right. We don't actually own any. Magazine. Like, do they still send out printed versions of Vogue magazine? Probably. Well, I don't know. I feel like you see it in salons. Maybe not salons. I don't know where you see it. I'm okay, sure that's you another see thing. I don't go to salons, so. Well, that's because you're not fashionable. Well, anyways, the reason why I know that Harry Styles was on the cover of Vogue magazine is because he has a unique sense of style that has not been universally loved by everybody. In that, in more than one of the photographs in the photo shoot, he is wearing pretty a dress. much yeah, pretty much a straight up dress. I heard like, oh, Harry Styles wears a dress. I was like, let me see this. This is probably like, you know, making headlines or whatever. And I pulled up the picture. I'm like, oh, sure enough, yep, that's pretty, <laughs> that is that a dress. is definitely a dress. And so we want to talk about that men wearing dresses. What does that have to do with <laughs> theology? It actually That's a great question. has quite a lot. And to be sure, all of his style choices in the photo shoot were very like high fashion and kind of beyond the realm of anything I would consider wearing, which is expected for Vogue magazine. But the the dress was a particularly striking image. So striking that conservatives uh, lit up the internet with it. And one conservative voice, Candace Owens, retweeted the cover of Vogue magazine, and she had this to say. There is no society that can survive without strong men. The East knows this. In the West, a steady feminization of our men at the same time that Marxism is being taught to our children is not a coincidence. It is an outright attack. Bring back manly men. And she didn't back down when there was a hailstorm of backlash that came at her. And uh, there was many other voices, but she's the one that kind of made the, the biggest splash. And her take on the situation is that Harry Styles' fashion choices are a fundamental attack on what it means to be a man. And so that leaves us with this question of, well, what does it actually mean to be a man? And what should Christians have to say about manhood and what does the Bible have to say about that? And should we be concerned 
with what Harry Styles is wearing on the cover of Vogue mag- magazine. Is it an attack on our manhood or is it not? That's what we want to talk about. Yeah, and I think really when it comes back to the Christian understanding of what we see happening in the world, it might just feel like, oh, it's just a fashion choice, which we'll kind of dive deeper into later in this conversation. But there are some questions that seem pretty fundamental to who we are, and that is our identity as men and women. And that's obviously a pretty hot topic these days anyways. And I think this choice by Vogue and Harry Styles kind of pushes that conversation in a different direction. And it's important as Christians for us to be able to grapple with it and even ask, what does the Bible have to say about these things that we're facing in society right now? Right, and this is a bigger conversation than just the Vogue cover. And to be sure, Harry Styles' style before this was kind of out there and eccentric. And but we want to see like what does that that mean in terms of the state of manhood and what should it mean? And so we want to look at some uh, biblical guidance on what does the Bible have to say about what it means to be a man and kind of the important passages and ideas and stories within that. Yeah. And the Bible actually does have something to say about what it is to be a man. And maybe to our surprise, it's not much about fashion at all as it is about character and the way you hold yourself. I mean, let's be honest. Jesus wore a tunic, which is low key, a straight up dress. Yeah. But Fashion changes over culture and time, and so obviously the cover of Vogue magazine is pushing boundaries in ways that Jesus and his tunic did not because that was very common for men to wear at that time, and it wasn't perceived as something that women wore. So what does the Bible actually have to say about being a man? And I think we can start at the very beginning with the first man in Genesis. It's always good to start at the beginning. I mean, yeah, maybe we could start in the middle, but the beginning sounds fitting. And the man, his name was Adam. Which actually just means man. Right. So Adam was actually created as a leader. And we know that because he was charged with the task to name each and every animal. So he was already given some form of leadership over the earth from the very beginning of his creation. But in order to name the animals at that time, and this would have been commonly understood within the culture, is that you would have had to actually know them. That was just the way that it was in ancient Eastern culture. Yeah, so when we think of his leadership, what is really within the context of that is being relational and caring for the creatures around him that were put underneath him for him to care for. Yeah. To care for them enough to know them and then name them and dignify who and what they are. Mm-hmm. I mean, Hebrew names were really meant to signify what you were embodying as a person. And so that, that went for the animals as well. Yeah. And then we see Eve who comes along, which obviously she's made out of, the dust in the same way that Adam was, but she's made from the rib of man. So you see that 
she is equally cared for in the way that she was made. And we end up seeing that she comes as, the Bible describes it as a helpmate, who is equally a partner to Adam. Yeah, that same Hebrew word to describe Eve as a helper is used of God to say, God is my helper. So it's not like, oh, my little helper. It's like helpmate, upholder of my life kind of helper. Yeah, and the interesting thing about that Hebrew word is you only see it as it's describing Eve and as it describes God. You never see that Hebrew term describing anyone else in Scripture outside of God and Eve. So there is some weight and value and uh, purpose behind this word that we I think so casually use as like, oh, I'm a little, like you said, I'm a little helper. Like, like if I were talking to my son and be like, oh, do you want to be mommy's helper today? Like that's not what was happening when God is describing Eve as a helper. Right. Like she was actually helpful. (laughs) Not like our son. Our son is often the opposite. But then we see sin enter into this world. And that is really because Eve chose to believe that God wasn't telling the truth, that God wasn't speaking truth to her and that she had to like figure it out on her own and, and go and believe the lies that were being sold to her. But it it's not only Eve not trusting God, but it's also a lack of leadership from Adam because he was supposed to lead his family and he was passive in the situation and he did not fulfill his leadership role that God had entrusted to him since the moment he was created. Yeah, and so as a result of that, this relationship between Adam and Eve, which was meant to be one of two people who were created in the image of God as partners, as you know, one completing the other in many ways, it became a relationship that was adversarial and was competitive and this is part of the curse that was handed down i said because of this sin he said this to eve literally it says your desire will be for your husband and not in the sense of like hey like your desire will be (laughs) to dominate over your husband but he will rule over you that isn't a statement of like oh this is the way i meant it to be that's a statement of because now things are jacked up that's just the way it's going to be. And so this relationship of cooperation between man and woman had now turned into this relationship of competition and where one is trying to dominate over the other, and it's really been that way ever since. And the reason why we're talking about this narrative in particular is because really when the Bible talks about manhood, I was looking through like different passages and kind of doing some research, And as I was trying to think, like, what does the Bible have to say about manhood? The Bible doesn't really ever talk about manhood, except for in the context of how manhood and womanhood interact, how maleness and femaleness interact. And really, the definition of manhood in the Bible, of masculinity, is often just describing how the masculine ought to interact with the feminine, which is to be the opposite of what the fall has naturally made us to be, which is naturally adversarial. Yeah, and so what we see a lot of is these descriptors of how 
males are to act in relation to females. And a lot of the things that we kind of can pull out from the multiple verses in scripture is that the male should act toward female with empathy, with love, with sacrifice and gentleness. And you even see that comparison so far as um, to love and sacrifice for your wife, which in that context, it's talking about a husband and a wife, but to the degree that Jesus himself laid down his life for the church. And so you, you really see it as even this servanthood idea that the male is to be servant-like in relationship to the female. Yeah, and that's in Ephesians that Paul talks about in a little bit in Colossians where he says, wives submit to your husbands, but husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for the church. And then he tells us in Galatians that there's no male or female, and he's not he's not eradicating gender distinction, distinctions there because those are still important. But in terms of a hierarchy, there's no male and female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. When Paul is talking to his friend Timothy, he instructs him as a a man, as a male leader, and and this is less talking about men in general and more talking about Timothy. This man in First Timothy six eleven says, "But for you, O man of God, flee from these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness." And even as we look to the Old Testament, which was Uh, The culture of the ancient Near East was a very male-dominated culture, and that's the audience to which the Old Testament was written. God offers laws that protect women, and the reason that these commandments existed was because men were dominating women, and so he, he put these principles and rules in place to curb that as much as rules and laws could, but it was teaching the heart of God for masculinity and for manness. And there's just a couple of examples of that. You know, there's so many dudes in the Old Testament who had multiple wives. Yeah, like almost all of them. God was like consistently against that. Right. Like every time he that God talks about that, he's like, it's always a bad idea. You should never do that. And it, so many people did it. And another example is God made it so that if you got a woman pregnant out of wedlock, and hang with me on this one, uh, yes. <laughs> if you knocked her up, you would be required to marry her or pay her dowry. And you say, like, how is that helping women at all? Well, in that culture, if you just knocked up a girl and left her, then it was very likely that she wasn't going to probably ever get married because of the cultural stigma. And because of just the, the patriarchal culture, she would most likely be financially destitute. And so there was protections there, and there were other protections that you can see throughout the Old Testament that were for the benefit of women because of male domination over them. And really, throughout the Bible, we see these commands to correct the fallenness of maleness to replace domination with empathy, servant leadership, compassion, and and caring. And certainly none of this has to do with clothing or fashion in any way. But in other ways, this existence of masculinity, it really only exists within the context of what it means to interact with femininity. And that's what we continue to see over and over again in scripture. So when we choose to define what it means to be a man by what we wear, 
then we might be perpetuating a culture of toxic masculinity. Yeah. So that's what this conversation has been kind of building to. Right. Yeah. Which is at the crux. Well, it's one of the cruxes of this whole conversation about a man wearing a dress on the cover of Vogue magazine of that's not conventionally manly. And what toxic masculinity is, it's really this sense that you have to be conventionally manly. And that kind of includes like suppressing emotion or masking distress, maintaining an appearance of like, like, oh, I'm so hard. Like I'm, I'm tough and rough. Like, a really great manly voice. Don't come up on me. Oh yeah. my gosh. And kind of violence is an indicator of power, whether mm-hmm. that violence is physical, whether that violence is sexual, or even if it's just threatened. And so toxic masculinity is all about being like the alpha dog, being competitive, being able to dominate others, which is basically the opposite of what God is calling men to do everywhere you turn in the Bible. Because... God is constantly telling men to like love your wife as Christ loved the church. And that's quite the opposite of this domineering, controlling sort of stone face. I'm the man and I run this place attitude because Christ laid down his life out of his love for the church. Right. So being a man isn't about keeping your wife under your thumb. Being a man is about loving your wife and helping your wife flourish in the same way one of god's requisite requirements for men to be leaders in the church is that they aren't lovers of power that they aren't hot-headed or abusive and really what what makes them a leader is that mm-hmm. they gain influence by exemplifying christ-like characteristics they don't steal influence they don't steal power they don't bully their way but they have influence because they have invested in other people in Christ-like ways. And that's what it means to be a man, is to build others up and not to dominate and to to be the alpha. Yeah, and you can certainly take on these masculine traits because it's very clear that God created male and female. Like there are clear distinctions between male and female. And so to just act in a manly way is not necessarily toxic, but there is a way to have those masculine traits that God has instilled within men and and really has called men to be and to see those exercised in ways of servant leadership and protecting others and um, offering strength, but not in this sort of macho, I am powerful and I'm going to just tower over you and take control of this entire situation. So, There certainly are those distinctions within scripture and we shouldn't try and say that your maleness and femaleness doesn't matter because scripture talks about those things and talks about them being in their rightful place. But we need to understand what it actually means to be male and female through the lens of scripture. Yeah. And so it's not toxic to like kind of culturally conventionally manly things like it's not toxic that you like steak and sports and whatever it might be. It's like kind of these going to the gym and like manly whatever. It's not toxic that you, if you're a man and you enjoy those things. It is toxic if you're a man and you think that those are the things that make you a man. Mm. That's what's toxic. Yeah. So that's an that's a important distinction there that liking manly things isn't toxic. But 
thinking that those quote unquote manly things are what make you a man, that's the toxic part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because strength and domination are two very different things. I mean, men are called to be strong, but they're not called, called to, to lord yeah. over people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that sort of moves us over to this conversation of as we look at gender roles and the importance of people identifying their gender, obviously, and, and fitting those roles that God has given them within their gender. How does that tie into what we wear? Because obviously there is something about our identifying markers and what we wear as male and female. Right. Yeah. That's why when you have a baby and it's a boy, there's nothing on his head. But if it's a girl and it's a bald baby girl, they put one of those bow headbands. The clothes are important important for, <laughs> for identifying your gender. I was trying to figure out where you were going I find that very that. helpful. I'm like, is this a boy or a girl? Bow, okay. Bow, it's a, it's a baby it. girl. You know what? The, there is some truth to that because I definitely wanted people to know that Silas was a boy. And I remember thinking, let me dress him in in darker colors, like identifying that he is a boy. So yeah, people, rub some dirt on him. Yeah, right. But there, there were just pieces. It's hard when you're a first-time mom. It's like, oh, she's so cute. You're like, no, it's a boy. It's a man. It's a manly man. <laughs> but there so is clothes matter to some degree. Is is what we're getting at? Yeah, and there's actually one passage in the New Testament, First Corinthians 11, which this is a very thorny passage. So we can't unpack the whole thing uh, today. If you go back and listen to episode 11, we dive into this passage a little bit more. This is the ever infamous head coverings passage in 1 Corinthians. The women were getting up to pray and prophesy and they weren't wearing head coverings. Apparently, culturally, that, culturally, that was a big deal. That was something that women didn't do. They did not wear head coverings when they were speaking in public. So uh, he has a a conversation with them about it saying that hey if you if the women are going to get up and and pray and prophesy in the church service he that they um ought to wear these head coverings but then he kind of has this kind of by the way metaphor that he uses to justify it in 1 Corinthians 11 verses 14 and 15 he says this does not nature itself teach us that if a man wears long hair it is a disgrace for him but if a woman has long hair, it is to her glory, for her hair was given to her as a covering. And that's so interesting because Paul isn't necessarily defining for all time that if you're a woman and you have short hair that you're not a, a woman, woman anymore, that, that that's a disgrace. Or that if you're a man and you have long hair, that you're not a man anymore and that's a disgrace. But what he is doing is he's tapping into the culturally accepted gender norms for that culture and that time to kind of use that as a metaphor based on their cultural assumptions to to kind of may illustrate his point about the fact that the women should get up and pray and prophesy, but they shouldn't do so pretending that they were men. They should step into that through the lens of their womanhood and through that, that gender role and contribute in a way that uniquely only women could. But he's using this, by the way, metaphor of the cultural conventions of how men and women dressed and were expected to dress. Right. So he's not creating a standard for all time as he's pulling out these 
culturally acceptable norms. But he is saying there are distinctions between men and women, and you should actually lean into those distinctions, even though you can both stand up and pray and prophesy, which again, if if you want to get into that verse, go back to episode 11. But He's saying you can both do it, but do it within the gender role that you were given by God, because those are distinctively different and those should both be valued and honored and dignified within what God has respectively given you. Right. And with that said, those particular fashion choices will change over time. Like, ain't nobody getting upset if a man has long hair these days. Right, and we even see that later on in First Timothy 2, 9 through 10, where we're seeing pretty detailed distinctions of fashion, where now we can look at it and think that doesn't apply in the same way that it did when it was written. And so in First Timothy 2, 9 through 10, it says, Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And right now, if you were to think like, what's wrong with a braid? Should I not be braiding my hair? Is there an issue there? That's not what this passage is talking about. What was identified as a braid back then and, you know, adorning yourself with jewelry and like expensive attire was that you were kind of like a lady of the night during this time that's just how it was culturally then so basically in first timothy it's saying like don't be a lady of the night and don't dress like a lady of the night and so we can then take that now and say well what does that look like obviously that doesn't look like braided hair because braided hair is often like a very conservative hairstyle these days. Right, it's a very conservative, modest right. kind of hairstyle. And even like it's interesting because Peter says virtually the same thing in 1 Peter 3 and 4 where he talks about the braided hair and the gold and the pearls. And those were, I guess, very specific to a woman who was promiscuous. Whereas now braided hair is like you're very conservative And, you know, that's a modest kind of haircut. So these things change over time. And we've seen that even in our lifetime. Like my grandfather's generation, if you wore a hat inside, it was incredibly disrespectful. Right. But but not anymore. And like for my dad's generation, he's like, tuck in your shirt. I don't. I don't tuck in my shirt. Or even like, you know, when skinny jeans were becoming a trend. (laughs) Yes. This is kind of offensive. But I was told, like, you can't wear skinny jeans because that means that you're gay. Like you're being a woman if you're wearing skinny jeans. And that's not even in an issue anymore, except for in some probably like really right wing kind of weird churches that you don't want to go to anyways. Yeah. And it does change. It changed like fashion changes. And so we need to continue to put fashion in its context and in its culture because I remember there was a day when I wore red lipstick to church and I was told oh, yeah. that only women of the night wear red lipstick. And I was like, no, red lipstick is really in right now. It's a really good fashion choice. So uh, I immediately just discarded it because I was like, no, I really know that that does not mean this anymore. Maybe it did at one point in time, but red lipstick is now acceptable. 
Yeah, and I think another thing you you brought that up, kind of like, oh, this is in fashion. We you know we can just experiment with you know what we're wearing and the makeup choices and all those kinds of things. I think we have freedom in that in the way that the people of the Bible didn't, right? Because it was so cost prohibitive for them. Like they were probably wearing like a tunic that was basically unisex, and it looked like a potato sack. It's just like earth tones. <laughs> I mean, I just and I had a piece of rope, to, you know, to as their belt, and even to have like a white T-shirt would have been luxurious because to dye it would would have been cost prohibitive, mm-hmm. and to make jewelry was very cost prohibitive. Now we live in the world of Forever Twenty One and Amazon, and I just bought two new black T-shirts for twelve dollars total the other day. And so we're living in a different world where we're not under those constraints. Like if you were a person who wore like a white robe and jewelry and even like some kind of makeup in Paul's time or in Peter's time, that meant A, you had a lot of money and B, that you were spending it on very frivolous things. Whereas that's not really the case anymore. Because we're living in a different world. But the principle still applies that you shouldn't be self-absorbed to the point of spending a small fortune to dress yourself up in this vanity and trying to seek the attention uh, of everybody, but let your adorning be your good works Hmm. and your good character. That's the principle that we're meant to take from that. Not necessarily... Don't braid your hair. Yeah, the Apostle Paul's fashion advice. That's not (laughs) the heart of it. Right. But all that to be said, like fashion and clothing is relatively neutral. I think we, we've said that as like, I'm talking about wearing red lipstick and Dale's talking about wearing skinny jeans. Like, are we making any sort of a statement by doing those things in in the way that people are in an uproar over the Vogue magazine cover? And so can we see fashion as an exclusively neutral concept or is there is there something else behind fashion that though we can experiment with trends in fashion to some degree, are there some other boundaries that we shouldn't be pushing within fashion because it then steps into this territory of what we're seeing now as a controversial issue of manhood and womanhood? Yeah, and I think fashion, particularly fashion of the Vogue magazine variety, is a mode of creative expression. And when you get to the point of being on a magazine cover, it is an art form. And really, art, if it's good art, is making a statement about something, typically. Mm -hmm. But fashion, like art, leaves open to interpretation what exactly that statement is. And to go back to our friend Harry, we're on first name basis with him now by the end of this podcast. <laughs> He's a big, big time her and him fan now. Oh, yeah, he is. <laughs> As we, we go back to our friend Harry, I actually read in an interview where he was talking about his fashion and his style. And he had actually kind of basically said that he's not really sure like what statement he's trying to make, if any. He just likes to play around with clothes and wear interesting things. And so, at least from the way he describes it, he's 
not trying to particularly make a statement, which ironically enough has gained him a lot of criticism from the LGBTQ community. Yeah, I who, was reading about that. Who have basically said, hey, the straight guy has appropriated our culture. He's not trying to make a statement about us or move our agenda forward or yeah. celebrate us. He's just a man wearing a dress on the cover of Vogue magazine. And so that's an interesting thing there that his non-statement is also a part of this controversy here where, you know, fashion has meaning to people. It's not just about covering ourselves with fig leaves. Like there is some mode of self-expression and, and something creative and something unique about the what we decide to put on our bodies and, and to clothe ourselves with. And I think it is important whether we are intentionally trying to make statements or unintentionally trying to make statements. Like we do need to be aware that uh, to some degree our fashion choices do matter. And I, for the longest, didn't quite understand that because I thought, well, why can't I be able to just like wear whatever cute style is in and, and just call it what it is? And I certainly think there's more pressure, especially for Christian women and current styles and what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. But there was one point when I first started to do speaking events and I was actually told by an older woman not to wear a sleeveless shirt because there was something about that that was offensive to the older generation. No spaghetti strap. You <laughs> well, gotta do it, like the two finger thing. Yeah. Well, no, it wasn't even a spaghetti strap. Like it went to the edge of my shoulder. It just showed my full arm. And I remember thinking, well, that just feels silly to me because there's no, I'm not showing anything besides like my shoulder. And you're like, and it's July. Oh, and it's really hot, and we're in Southern California, but. The more I really began to kind of pray about it and think like, man, like this is ridiculous. Do I have to cater my entire style depending on who I'm speaking to? And what continued to kind of just come up in conversations over the next few weeks and, and just kept coming to my mind was that, is it really that important that I wear sleeves versus no sleeves? Because if the women I'm speaking to, that is offensive to them and that's pretty mainly the bulk of the women that I'm going to speak at this particular event are older. Do I want to allow my clothing to be a stumbling block to them? Do I want to allow my clothing to stop them from hearing the gospel because they're so offended by my shoulders? And I thought, well, that's not, that's not a statement I'm trying to make. And so whether I agree with them or I don't, and I think it's silly because obviously my generation, like if we're hot, it's okay to show your shoulders. There's nothing promiscuous about that but for them they're coming from a different generation and so I, I do think we just kind of need to be mindful of those things and be mindful of what are the hills we want to die on and whether we are intentionally making a statement or unintentionally making a statement um, when it comes to us being believers we don't ever want anything to become a stumbling block unnecessarily yeah and I think the balance of that too is like you also don't want to be a a people pleaser I guess no of course where not. you don't want to I guess be beholden to the whims of whatever the craziest person who walked up to you and was going to say something about it no I mean if it's a one-off person that's fine but if you're literally stepping into a room of 
60 people and they're all drastically offended by what you're wearing, like that's probably not worth it. Right, right. It's just not worth that battle for you to wear a sleeveless top that day. Yeah, I remember when I was preaching regularly at a church and I had a particular haircut. I guess it was too radical for some people. And it wasn't like I had a purple mohawk or any kind of dyed color or anything strange. It was it was like a regular undercut where it was long on top and short on the sides. And man, I just got harassed like relentlessly. I ended up uh changing my haircut. But I just changed my haircut every few months anyways. Yeah, but, but that situation was different because I mean, you definitely had a handful of people that were really adamant about reminding you week after week. But if you surveyed the couple hundred of people that were at that church, there was a handful of them. So you weren't offending two, three hundred people. You were unfortunately, I guess, offending five that just were hackling you about your haircut. Right. So I'm going to keep wearing my skinny jeans. I'm going to keep getting my skin fade. And what else do I wear that's offensive? That's basically it. I just wear t-shirts and jeans. Yeah. I always laugh, though, when they're like, are those your wife's jeans? Yeah. And I'm always like, mm, no. <laughs> and you're like, is I that your grandma's joke? <laughs> is that your grandma's joke? But all that to be said, <laughs> we do just need to be mindful of the way we interpret other people's clothes, too, and such that we're not prematurely judging them or continuing to cultivate a culture of toxic masculinity. So... I think what needs to kind of hopefully come out of this conversation is that to some degree, yes, fashion matters. Um, and to some degree, we need to personally be mindful of that. But we also need to not be quick to judge others based on their fashion choices. Basically, what we're trying to say is be cool, everybody. And yeah. just as long as all your body parts are covered, don't take it too personally. All of your body parts? Yeah, all the ones that need to be covered. Okay. It's like <laughs> just cover them up. Like your shoulders? <laughs> <laughs> Please, keep your shoulders covered. No one wants to see that. Anywho, we have an announcement that we would like to make about a project that we have been working on, and I'm holding it in my hands right now. Tamara, do you want to read what it, it we, says on the cover of this here? I would love to, but first I want to say we have been holding in this announcement for months and months and months and we are so excited to finally be able to share it with you it's um, i'm not gonna lie i've been telling all kinds of people in person. okay well i have been listening to the the rules that were given to us <laughs> when we were asked to do this project and not to tell anyone so dale breaks the rules i follow the rules we are super excited to announce that we have been working on a book and it is called Practicing Christian Compassion, 50 Devotions to Embody God's Grace in Your Daily Life by Dale and Tamara Chamberlain. I like how you had to so intently read the title of your own book as though you, you weren't the one that wrote it. It was a really long title. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> There's a lot of words in there. Yeah, so this book is, as the title would suggest, a collection of 50 devotions 
about what it looks like to be a Christian who has compassion. And it kind of goes through a, a number of different sections. How do you have compassion amongst your family? How do you have compassion amongst your friends and your friend groups, amongst your colleagues and coworkers, your local community, and your global community? And so there is 10 devotions for each of those uh, with some, some ac- application points, and we have some resources in here. And we have been working really hard on it, and we have our handy-dandy advanced copy here. And if you want a copy, you can order it on Amazon. You can search Practicing Christian Compassion on Amazon. Or if it's easier, you can go to hernham.com slash book, and you will be able to find the link It's a really good link. (laughs) Yeah, so you can pre-order it now. It is available for pre-order exclusively on Amazon. Yeah, so go get your copy. Please, show your love. Thanks for listening to the Her and Him podcast. If you enjoyed hanging out with us, consider subscribing to the podcast to receive it automatically each week. We'd also love it if you head over to iTunes to leave us a rating and review. And be sure to come visit us at herandhim.com where you'll find show notes for this episode, our blog, and other resources to help you experience the abundant life that Jesus promised us. Thanks again. We'll see you next week. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.